So here we are, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it, some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them, Just as Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we too are people who cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Save us, even us. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever decided that you'd like to go back to visit your childhood home? Have you ever been on a road trip and got back or just driving, drove around town and you got back to where your home was? And as you see your childhood home, you kind of, ah, it's not how I remembered it. It's changed. There's some things that are different about it. Maybe uh, you're younger and everything was big, but now you're older and it seems so much smaller than you recall. Uh, maybe you've come back and sadly you feel grief because your childhood home is dilapidated. It's a shell of its former self. 
Maybe some of you have gone back to see your child at home only to find out it's gone. It's been bulldozed. Fred Meyer now sits where it was, for example. There's something in us, isn't there, that says when we return to our home, there's something in us that says it should be the way it was. Things should continue on. It should remain fruitful and do well just as it was when I was there and younger. There's something in us that grieves when we see, yeah, it's a shell the way it was. For Jesus here, as he's entering into Jerusalem here, he comes to what should be his home only to find it is not really his home. It's not the place he was supposed to dwell. The place he's supposed to dwell here is in shambles. And I'm sure some of you may respond, Thomas, I don't know that that's really a fair comparison because as far as I know, Jesus has lived in the north. He's lived in Galilee. I don't know that Jesus has ever lived at the temple in Jerusalem. So I don't know that this follows. Au contraire. Second Chronicles chapter 7 gives the account of how King Solomon built up this beautiful, amazing temple. And he prayed, and the text says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings at the temple, and then the glory of the Lord filled this temple. The priests could not enter. Why? Because God himself was dwelling in the Holy of Holies. God himself was tabernacling. He was living there amongst his people. And from an earthly perspective, we could say that this was home. It was more than just a vacation home by the sea for the Lord. This was the place where worship was to occur. This was the place where sacrifices were truly brought. This was the place where people with contrite hearts, hearts of sincerity and brokenness for the Lord, came to worship him. And we see here, God in Christ Jesus has returned to his temple. He's returned and he found the place that he should be free to dwell. It's unfit for a king. It's unfit for a Messiah. It's unfit for God. And this brings us to this great turn in the narrative of Mark, where we're entering the third and final act of this book. This is where Jesus, in this third and final act, for those of you taking notes, he's going to usher into Jerusalem a new temple, a new sacrifice, a new covenant, and a new Passover. And so to outline our time here, as we look at this first section, we're going to see Jesus, the Messianic King, has come home, only to find it unworthy of being home. So those are my two sections. Jesus... The Messianic king has come home, only to find it unworthy of being home. So first, the king has come home. If your life was a movie, if your life was a movie, you would hope that if you watched it, there would be certain moments, certain scenes where everything would slow down. You know the white writing that comes in the movies at the bottom there? It says three years later or a decade later. And and hopefully it's skipping over stuff that's just the mundane and zooming in on those portions where things are really important. Um, And and those important moments in your life, moments where you said to the company, you can't fire me, I quit. Or or moments where you say, uh, you get down on one knee and you say, "Uh, would you marry me? Those key moments. Well, for Jesus's life here, as it travels through the Gospels, what is, is going on? We're seeing these key moments that are being zoomed in on. And all four Gospels slow down the most on this final week. 
All four gospels travel along, travel along, travel along. You see the white letters that say two months later, three months later, two years later. But here, all four come and say at the bottom, the white writing says his final week. Mark gives us 38% of his gospel is dedicated to this final week. Why? It's the most important. Everything hinges on what Jesus is about to do as he comes home, as he enters this place. And as we zoom in here, we see that Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, much like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, how his face was set towards Mordor, set towards Mount Doom. So too, Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, towards the hill of the skull, Golgotha. And here, as we see him entering this city, the events, they make a scratch a little bit. We're, we're, We're trying to put these things together, a bit puzzling at first. As we read earlier in the first 11 verses, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. A crowd honors him. What is celebrated as Palm Sunday or or what was the beginning of Passover week. And then he enters the temple late in the day. And you could picture him walking into the temple and he's just sort of like looking around and looking up, looking down. He's checking things out. Then he just gets up and leaves. It's rather anticlimactic. It would be like if you followed a parade, and the parade ended up at the Moda Center, but it's midnight, and nothing's going on. Everything's shut down. Okay, and he leaves. But if we see what's going on here, Jesus is deliberate in his actions and showing up, and some of these things are bringing home to us. These are not random events here. They're deliberate. For example, Jesus approaches Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. He's specifically coming from this direction. Mark makes note of it. The other uh, gospel writers make note of this. And the prophet Ezekiel tells us that when the presence of the Lord left Jerusalem with the first temple, when, when he left, he did so from where? God's presence left his people from the Mount of Olives. This is an exit point. So it is rather striking that as Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, he comes via Mount of Olives. But also, in Zechariah 14, he prophesies it as a place of messianic judgment. Uh, You can turn to Zechariah 14 and read later about how his feet, when his feet are on the mountain as he returns, he's coming in messianic judgment. But then we read the more familiar events of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That is something I think we are all fairly familiar with, this idea of Jesus riding in on this donkey. Now, if you are the God of the universe, and you're showing up to your home, to your people, to your, to your place where you dwell on earth, do you think you choose, as God of the universe, a donkey? No, 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 no. You, you ought to choose something grander. I, w- I would go for, uh, let, let's say, a Clydesdale horse that is jet black. Or a Clydesdale horse, they have them that are, that are bright white and beautiful, beautiful, huge steeds. And, and you could imagine him coming in on this. But when Jesus comes to lay down his life for us, he comes in humility. And so when he comes, he comes not on this horse, but on a humble donkey. This is, a, this is not, as we would suppose, a 2022 Chevy uh, Colorado, uh, I don't know, 3500 HD. No, this isn't even a Chev Camaro. This is more like a Chevy Cavalier. Do you remember what a Chevy Cavalier is? 
They were a humble little commuter car that quickly went on the market and for good reasons quickly went off. Jesus comes in in humility, folks. And it's tied to the Zechariah 9.9 passage where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so Jesus here is intentionally fulfilling messianic prophecy. In addition, this colt, this donkey, is tied all the way back to Genesis 49, where there is a brief reference being made to the ruling Messiah to be in connection with the donkey coming from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus tells his disciples that they, they, they should go get this colt. And if anyone asks about it, just say, hey, the Lord has need of it. To which I, I pictured myself um, trying to go to my neighbor's house. My neighbor has a, a motorcycle. He likes to ride back and forth. I thought, you know, what would happen if I just showed up, went over to his motorcycle, and took it, and as I'm walking out with the motorcycle, he says, hey, what are you doing? I said, don't worry, the Lord has need of it. I don't picture it going very well. But here in their culture, there was a royal right. There was a right that if a king showed up into a town, the king could commandeer any livestock that he so desired as long as when he was done with, it, with the purpose of borrowing it, he could return it to the people. This was a common known thing. And the crowd then here gathers and sees what Jesus is doing. And you could picture in their mind, they're saying, oh, I see him purposely doing certain actions here that are in line with a coming king, with a messianic king who's coming. And, 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 and they're coming here to as parade him into the town with great anticipation. And, and because I'm short on time, I'm just going to make a brief men- mention of two facts here regarding this crowd. First, Mark condenses into this single week what we see, we, we believe, with the Gospel of John, where Jesus may have actually come to Jerusalem earlier in the fall. Um, but Mark is intentionally condensing things, and I believe these ordered events do happen in this section from Sunday to Sunday here. But second, I want you to understand that this crowd here that is praising Jesus is likely not the same crowd that shouts later, crucify him. And I think this is key to catch. The assumption can be that the crowd here who seems to love Jesus is so fickle that just four days later, they're yelling, who's this guy? We don't even know, but just kill him anyways. And I think it misses what may, may be in history, history is always messier than we, than we first assume, is that these pilgrims who've come from the north who are more aware of, of Jesus and his ministry, they're not aware of everything for sure. But I think they have this anticipation that he may be messianic. And so they're getting excited about this, where the crowds later who shout crucify him are more likely the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Jerusalem crowd who have been stirred up by the corrupt priests and scribes and Pharisees. And so here, this crowd who's pilgrimed along the way, they're getting excited. They're spreading their cloaks and leafy branches. This was a cultural way of, of making way for the coming royalty. It also was a bit of a reenactment, uh, from when Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9 became king. There we read, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
the, the taking off the, the cloaks and putting them on the stairs, it was a way of honoring the coming king. R.T. Francie notes, he says, this was kind of our modern way of rolling out the red carpet for someone. As you take off your cloak and you put these branches down and you're rolling out the red carpet for them. And, and it's, a, it's subtle here in Mark, but friends, it is here. It is right here. Jesus is fulfilling on purpose, deliberately, numerous passages in subtle ways, showing us indeed he is king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And they're recognizing he has come at some level, although blissfully unaware of how exactly this was all going to work out. But the expectation is risen. And so in hopes they treat him as king. Surely they're not even aware of all their actions here. They're probably not aware that they're fulfilling prophecy, but they begin to shout out this Hosanna, this Hosanna, Hosanna. They chant and sing these words, which come from Psalm 118. We heard read earlier, and I will repeat just the, the short section here where the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then we get this where we get the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, Lord. Save us, we pray, Lord. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It was a great psalm. This is a perfect psalm to celebrate the beginning of Passover week. It was a great psalm for them to sing about God saving them out of Egypt. But it was an even greater psalm for them to sing Hosanna, Hosanna, because a greater deliverer was coming into Jerusalem and was going to usher in a rescue, not from Pharaoh, but from death. And so we have seen here, Jesus, the Messianic King, has come home. And at this moment, we could suppose what should have occurred. Jesus should have rightly taken the throne of David. He could rightfully stand in the Holy of Holies in the temple and people could come and worship him, be healed and be forgiven. But nothing is right here about this scene. Because why? Jesus, the Messianic King, has come home only to find it is unworthy of being his home. This is pictured by the notable sandwiching structure that Mark uses frequently in this, in this book. Uh, Jesus, first he curses the fruitless fig tree. He then brings to light that the temple was fruitless itself. And then it closes as they return to the fig tree. And Jesus tells the disciples what being fruitful disciples looks like. And that's how I'm going to unpack the rest of this. An unfruitful tree, an unfruitful temple followed by the fruitful disciple. The sandwich section, section here helps, uh, helps us uh, make sense of the enclosing words that Jesus says. But at first blush, it's kind of confusing. Uh, because Jesus here seems to uh, condemn a tree for not having fruit when it should not have fruit, which is odd. But then he also gets angry in the temple, which seems somewhat uncharacteristic of Jesus. And so if you are pondering how this works, you're not the only one. But a deeper look here, we'll see what Mark has for us. First, this unfruitful tree. When I was younger, I was happy to make a breakfast out of a tire block of fig newtons. And now the thought just makes me shudder. It would be like eating cake for breakfast. There's, there's so much sugar in those things. But fr fruit and figs were an important staple for them. 
And Jesus is hungry as they come from the town of Bethany. They're on a two-mile journey. And they're entering into Jerusalem. He sees a tree from a distance. And he, and notice Mark here says, seeing a fig tree in leaf. This is key, in leaf. Uh, this is important because the, the, uh, the idea that this was in leaf brings up this expectation for Jesus. Hey, if it's in leaf, maybe there's fruit on it. But it, it is helpful when we also understand that there, there was two harvests. It was not just a single harvest like we might have for pears here in Hood River. That there, were, there was an early harvest for the figs that happened typically in May, June. But then there was a later harvest that happened in more like August, September. And of course, it's neither of those times. This is more likely, you know, April, uh, end of March, early April, that they're approaching this tree and he sees it in leaf, as Mark tells us. And now the important aspect of this is that the expectation, because it was in leaf, is at least by this season, he would have been able to go up to the tree and he would have at least seen some buds starting to form on the tree, what would later become the figs. And so he could at least come up and go, oh, okay, good. This thing is going to be fruitful. But when Jesus comes, we see something that's odd here. He comes to look at the tree. He's looking for something, anything, some sign of fruitfulness, a little something. But what does he see? Look at verse 13. And they sent, sorry, verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so before moving on, what's the image trying to tell us here? The image is that this tree, looking from a distance, was hopeful. It looks promising, but then you get close and it might as well be dead. The fruit-bearing tree doesn't even show signs of a fruitful harvest to come. Jesus looks and he sees nothing. All bark and no bite. All glitter and no gold. This is the illustration that we must keep in mind when we get to the next scene, going from the unfruitful tree to the connection of the unfruitful temple. And here it's not difficult to follow the events. Jesus enters the temple. He shuts down the market and he calls for the people to return to making the temple a house of prayer. Question, why did he do this? Well, Josephus notes that one year, that he recorded there was 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed there at the temple for Passover. And you could account for one lamb maybe being representative of three or four or five in a family. So do the math, friends. We're talking at certain periods and times that over a million pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem for the season of Passover. And, and all of these lambs are representing something. They were sacrificial lambs representing a sacrifice of this lamb dying in my place to atone for my sin, to appease the wrath of God on my behalf. This lamb is taking my place. And so you could imagine as the temple swelled during this season and the number of folks coming and going, this, if you were there, this would have been a madhouse. Further, you have people who've come from days away. And so for them to bring a lamb with them, if you have to travel three or four days and you have to, you know, lug around this lamb all the way there, it was a huge hassle. And so for many people, what they would do is they would just wait till they got to Jerusalem and purchase a spotless lamb that was there. And so they would put their money down to do that. 
But the merchants, which historically had used the Mount of Olives, had been granted, and I believe, if I recall right, that they were granted access by King Herod to move from the Mount of Olives, to move the selling of these lambs right there into the temple court itself. And so what followed? What followed was the place where heartfelt, somber worship and sacrifice had occurred has now become like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Except it'd be worse than that. Not just in the heyday of the, of the floor of the exchange where you just have yelling and bells and whistling and all this action and changing of money going on, but worse because picture the market floor just littered with thousands and thousands of sheep all around. And the hearts of men had been calloused on two fronts. First, the people selling the sheep were noted to have charged exorbitant prices. Some noting as much as 50 times the regular price of a lamb was charged. And you see, friends, this wasn't just about providing needed sacrifices. This wasn't even about these merchants becoming rich. This was about them becoming filthy, filthy rich off the backs of these pilgrims who've come to make atonement for sin. And on the other front, the people who showed up, they were wanting to just check the box. They showed up asking, what can I do to scratch God's back and appease him? Their hearts were far from true repentance and seeking a walk with God. It was a simply a way for them to go through the motions. Okay, I slap down my couple hundred bucks. I buy this sheep and uh, I can at least say, uh, I can bring my lamb over here, meander through all the people, chuck them down into the pile, and then I can go to sleep a little better that night saying, well, I guess I did what I was supposed to do. Didn't I, God? It's like a husband who gives his wife a wad of cash and says, why don't you just go to the store and buy the cheapest flowers there you can find for yourself? And by the way, don't say I never bought you flowers. You say, where's the heart in that? There's none. It's just a transaction so you can check the box. So meanwhile, my heart, my thoughts, My sin, my behavior, my joy in God is not even brought into the equation at all. Do you see the danger, friends? See why then Jesus is angered. He's angered here with good reason. Jesus wasn't losing his cool. Jesus wasn't out of line. He who knew no sin was responding to sin with an appropriate response, which is anger and sorrow and grief and frustration. Friends, I think if Jesus came to the scene and he said, well, I don't know, this doesn't look right to me, but you know, you do you. And besides God, God is filled with grace. So whatever it's, and in the end, it all shakes out. It doesn't matter anyways. Then in what sense I ask you, could Jesus be good? In what sense could he be holy or be just? He couldn't. He must come and be angry with sin because sin is an outright rebellion against him. From an earthly perspective and from a distance, This temple seems like it has everything going for it. Lots of people, lots of action, probably laughter and smiles and high fives and busyness. It reminds me of that famous sign that says, uh, 25 years ago, we had Johnny Cash, we had Bob Hope and Steve Jobs, but now we have no cash, no hope, and no jobs. And, And then the bottom of the sign says, please do not let Kevin Bacon die. 
from an outward appearance here, things are great. The temple is bustling. There are myriads of people. Sacrifices are being made. Things are happening. The people have cash. They have jobs. They have hope. And of course, they have no bacon because they were good Jews. They didn't eat that. But, if, but, but, but outwardly, from the outward appearance, everything looks perfect. But inwardly, the hearts are dead. And so at the end of the sandwich, we return to look at this cursed tree. And as I close, I'm going to read verses 20 through 25, but I do want to let you know you'll see a tab. For those of you who have an NASB or a King James, you'll note that it has verse 26. Uh, the ESV, NIV, and some others don't have verse 26 just because it's not there in the oldest manuscripts. And it's likely a scribal insertion, which means a, a scribe would have known that it was there in Matthew chapter 6, and then seeing this phrase here said, oh, I know how this ends for Matthew, and likely, likely inserted it. So read with me at verse 20 here. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then we read also, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will they will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So, what is Jesus doing here? Friends, it's simple. If the tree is unfruitful, and the temple is unfruitful, it leaves us wondering, what would it look like to have fruit? What was a fruitful temple to look like? And Jesus says, well, you want to know what real fruit looks like, friend? It looks like this, the fruitful disciple. Notice these four elements that are in line here. First, faith in God. Not going through the motions just to merely go through motions, but a true belief that says, God is God. And I'm not going to try and change him into anything else or mold him into something. I'm going to let God be God and believe in him. But also added to this is prayer. A people who truly commune with God in prayer. And not just faith in prayer, but a faith in a prayer in life that will actually call out to God to respond and act. That's the third piece here. Calling God to actually respond. To metaphorically, yes, move the mountain. To change the heart's of ourselves and others. And lastly, finally, a heart that seeks, catch this, forgiveness. Why are the people of God buying sacrificial lambs, friends? They're buying them because they're seeking forgiveness from God. And when we have received forgiveness from God, who can we then forgive? Well, the answer is simple. We can forgive everyone easily. It would be like if God had given you $10 million and then somebody comes up in the congregation here and is in need. You would just, here's a hundred, here's a hundred, here's a hundred. It would be easy. And so too, friends, if we have been radically forgiven by God in heaven, what, what is it to me then to forgive each of you and you to forgive each other over small little trivial things? Of course it's easy. The call then to forgive others, even as we have been tremendously forgiven. 
And so these four elements are what Jesus stresses for the disciples. The same four elements that are to be found in the temple. This is what the temple was supposed to have. If you want a fruitful temple, and we do, then you have to have faith, prayer, calling God to work in our lives, and seeking of true forgiveness, even as we forgive one another. So then, church, church on the mountain, what about us? If Jesus came amongst us, would he be impressed? Would he respond with joy at our gatherings? Would he respond with joy at our bank account or our weekly actions or our meetings? Would he be content with lots of coming and going and transactions and handshakes and standing up and sitting down? Oh, friends, I don't know that Jesus is looking for busyness. I think that's okay for us to be busy, and we ought to be. But I think Jesus is looking for more than busyness. He's looking for our hearts. He wants you. Jesus is asking that we would turn to him. And if we turn to the good things of God, if we take those good things and we turn them into common things, friends, they become cursed, unfruitful things. Which is why Jesus is so angered by what he finds at the temple. Jesus curses the fig tree, which is emblematic of the temple. In cursing the tree, he's saying, no one may ever eat of you again. He's really cursing the temple structure then. And make no mistake about it, church, that in short order, after Jesus goes to the cross, the epicenter of where God communes with man will not be at this unfruitful temple. The structure was the communing and the sacrifice and the worship were at the temple, but they moved to Jesus himself because that's where the spirit of God dwelled. And now it's moved to the people of God where the spirit of God dwells so that the true temple, as Paul says, is right here. It's right here, not this wood, but here, these people, where Paul says that our bodies are the new temple in 1 Corinthians 6. And Peter says that each one of us are like bricks in the new temple. He says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, listen, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The implications are important. The issues here at this temple that we read about here in Jerusalem, that we read about can be the exact same issues that we have at this temple right here, the people of God. I think Jesus would be angry with us when our sermons, our prayers, our singing, our communion, our fellowship are all just show. They're all just buttoned up, organized, perfect, and our hearts are not really in it. Jesus hates religion when it's fancy and not fruitful. Jesus hates religion, friend, when it's trivializing God and does not show reverence. Jesus hates religion when it's all hands and no heart, when it's going through the motions, but there's no real desire for him at all. Oh, that we would be as one people, united, recognizing that Jesus' spiritual thermometer for checking to see if we're really on fire for the Lord is not the same thermometer that the world uses. The world comes in and says, ah, I see lots of lights and loud noises and people and and dollars and, and, and market exchanges. Things must be alive. Jesus, friends, is looking to the true fruit here. He's looking first. He wants us to, to trust him. He wants us to believe in him. He says that, trust in God. And if you have yet, friend, to trust in God, to believe in him, to be satisfied in him, 
Please talk with me. I would love for nothing more than to talk to you about this. For everything we believe hinges on that. He wants us to believe in him so that we place our lives into his hands and that we come to him like children, as we've seen in this book, in prayer, praying, Father, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven others who have sinned against us. That we'd be a people who confess our sin and repent of it, knowing without the Spirit, we too, we'd be just like the busy market makers in the middle of the temple. I would argue that we need to cry out to him too. Lord, move mountains. In this book, we see two types of shouting, two types of crying out that happen. One group here, we'll read later, shouts, crucify him, crucify him. But even we see a group here who yells out to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, save us. At the end of the day, everybody shouts something at Jesus. Nobody gets away with saying nothing. You either say, crucify him, or you say, Hosanna. As it has been said by many pastors prior to me, you either kill him or you crown him as king. You either crucify him or you shout Hosanna. And may God give us the grace to cry out and really mean it from the heart. Lord, save us. We need it. I see in us, church, I look around, I am so glad. I see fruit. I see fruit here. I think if Jesus were to return, he would say, ah, I see fruit. And I also pray, Lord, don't let us be content with the fruit we have. Grow it. May we look down the line 20 years from now and say, oh, so much more fruit was to come. Lord, please save us. And in the midst of saving us, cause us to truly be fruitful. So that if he were to come back home here to us, he wouldn't curse us. He'd praise us. And that we would rejoice in the fruitful kingdom work. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that the stone the builders rejected uh, became the chief cornerstone. That you you were the one who was passed over. You were the one who was uh, ignored, looked over. And yet you became the ultimate stone that brings together the true building of God, your people. I pray that you would give us faith's eye to truly see what we are when we gather and praise you from the heart. Help us even as we close now with this last song, Father, to, to worship you sincerely. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.